Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Good evening, children of the night. It's been a warm, rainy week here in the mountains of Virginia. Come on in and find shelter. We've got plenty of food and cold things to drink. We also have a couple of stories for you. In fact, we have a small parable from Tony as part of our drive for funding this week. I was reminded that we have many new listeners to Tales to Terrify, and actually they may have no idea that we're part of a larger podcast network called The District of Wonders. Who was Tony? Tony is the mayor of the district. He's the one who runs the things at the foundational level, handles the accounts and the money and such. He's also the host of Starship Sofa. If you also like sci-fi, give them a listen. And don't forget our neighbors at Far-Fetched Fables. But now, Tony. Hello, everyone. Yes, I'm just, we're into week three of this month-long campaign to try and get some support for Tales to Terrify. Do you know what I like to say? And I'm not, you know, I keep on beating the same old drum, but there was five people out of five, a possible 5,000 that kind of donated. And to stop these lights going off on Tales to Terrify, we need the funding. Do you know what I mean? We need the monthly donations. That's the one thing that kind of can keep we going, where we can stop worrying about you know, the kind of, like you say, the lights getting switched off and Tales to Terrify hitting its backside along the runway. You know what I mean? Get those monthly donations in so just week in, week out, we're covered. And I'm going to read you a little story. A little a, a gentleman that kind of just realised, you know, and started contributing. It was a great, he sent us a little kind of post on Facebook and I would like to read it there, you know, because it kind of sums up, I think, why Tales to Terrify has getting into this state. This is a story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody and nobody. There was an important job to be done and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. 
Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realised that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. Makes you think, do you know what I mean? A few words like that, it makes you think that everyone's, you know, and you'll be listening to this there now, thinking, you know, right, I'll get it done. Do you know, some people have listened to years and it's just not that they kind of want to kind of hoard the money or anything like that. They're just, all oh, right, right, right. Someone, someone's looking after them. You know what I mean? Someone isn't looking after her. Do you know what I mean? Tales to Terrify, lights are going to go off. We need some support. If you can do that, that would be fantastic. Like I say, the best way is monthly donations. £2.55, £10. God bless you. £20 a month would be amazing. Do you know what I mean? Just them supports would be fantastic. Keep this show running. We need your support. We need the monthly donations to keep going. Apart from that, the show, like I mentioned, is doing staggering. Do you know what I mean? You kind of get better than the way the figures are going for Tales to Terrify. So something's happening. Somebody's getting the message about Tales to Terrify, or everyone's getting the message about it, but no one's getting the memo about the support we need. Do us a favour and support Tales to Terrify. It's in a bit of a desperate state, and we certainly don't want to lose it. I know you don't. Thank you, Tony. Let's move on to our fiction for the evening. First up will be Anna Taborska's The Creaking. Anna was born in London, England. She studied experimental psychology at Oxford University and went on to gainful employment in public relations, journalism, and advertising before throwing everything over to become a filmmaker and horror writer. Anna has directed two short films, Ella and the Sin, two documentaries, My Uprising and A Fragment of Being, and a one-hour television drama, The Rain Has Stopped, which won two awards at the British Film Festival, Los Angeles, 2009. She has also worked on 17 other films, including Ben Hopkins' Simon Magus, starring Noah Taylor and Rutger Hauer. Anna worked as a researcher and assistant producer on several BBC television programs, including the series Auschwitz, The Nazis in the Final Solution, and World War II, Behind Closed Doors, Stalin, The Nazis, and The West. Her full list of works can be found on her website, anataborska.wix.com slash horror. Of course, link will be in the show notes. Her story tonight, The Creaking, comes from the seventh black book of horror, selections by Charles Black. And now, let's listen to The Creaking. Alice hurried through the forest, her basket filled with fresh herbs and small pots of strengthening tonics and soothing balms. She had worked all night, crushing healing leaves and seeds, grinding nourishing roots and dried fungi, mixing her concoctions so that she could bring relief to the sick and ailing as soon as the sun was up. Partially hidden by trees and thicket, her little house was a good half-hour walk from the village. It would have been easier if people came to her rather than her having to go to them, but some of those she helped were old and frail. Others were very sick, or busy looking after small children. Besides, the villagers didn't seem keen on walking through the forest, even during the day. This was something Alice couldn't understand. For her, the forest meant sanctuary and nurture. It hid her from the madding crowd, and provided her with food, and all the plants she needed to mix her medicines and make a meager living. 
and what didn't grow in the forest grew in the marshes and fields nearby. Alice hadn't been blessed with attractive features or an easy life. Her father had died when she was a little girl, and her mother had raised her alone. From an early age she had learned how to heal, and how to survive by working hard and keeping herself to herself. Alice's mother had traded remedies for eggs, milk, flour, and the occasional piece of cloth to patch up clothes, and now Alice did the same. Going to the village had been a frightening experience even when her mother was alive, but in the five years since her mother's death it just seemed to get harder. The villagers stared at her. Adults whispered behind her back, and children called her names. Even the people whom she helped were uneasy around her. They were grateful enough for the relief her remedies brought, but Alice could sense that as soon as she'd applied the ointment they needed or handed over their medicine, they didn't like her hanging around. The only bearable part of going to the village was a walk through the forest. Of course, Alice was in the forest practically every day, collecting berries, fungi, herbs, or kindling for the fire, but she loved spending time in the woods without having to work. When she was strolling among the ancient trees, listening to the birds and the soft, startled noises of small creatures scurrying away in the undergrowth, she felt something akin to contentment. Today was no different, except for the fact that Alice couldn't take her time. She needed to get to the village as soon as possible. Maggie Gray was counting on her to help her ailing daughter. The toddler had been coughing for several days now, and none of the usual mixtures of honey and herbs had worked. Alice had had to resort to mixing a blend based heavily on colt's foot, and that had to be prepared in just the right way, or it could poison the little girl rather than heal her. The sooner she could administer the medicine, the greater the chance that the child would recover. So Alice hurried along the path that wound its way to the village. It was early morning, and the sunlight was just beginning to filter down through the trees, but even at high noon the forest floor would be dark the tall and leafy trees casting a permanent shadow. At her brisk pace, Alice couldn't hear the bird song that she usually enjoyed. Today, her footsteps accompanied her, and the occasional flurry of wings as a bird fled its nest in alarm. As Alice burst out into the clearing not far from her home, she came face to face with a young deer. Alice froze, her face breaking into a smile, and gazed at the creature in wonder. No matter how many times she came across deer in the forest, their regal grace never failed to bring her joy. The animal held Alice's gaze, its mouth moving impassively as it chewed its morning meal. Then a loud creaking sound rang out behind Alice. The deer bolted in fright, disappearing into the undergrowth, and Alice span round but saw nothing. She stood very still, her heartbeat hard and fast. The sound came again, the wrenching, squealing, rasping sound of wood being stretched and distorted. Again and again the creaking resounded, as if a tree were being pummeled and bent by a strong wind, yet not the slightest hint of a breeze stirred in the forest. Alice wanted to run, but her legs refused to oblige. Instead, she peered into the trees, trying to see what was causing the heavy, rhythmic creak. It sounded like something was exerting a considerable amount of pressure on a large branch, but Alice saw nothing. 
Trying hard to conquer her fear, she placed her basket on the ground and took a step towards the sound. As she did so, the sound stopped. Alice moved forward a few paces, and the sound came again, this time right above her head. Alice screamed. She grabbed her basket and ran. Alice kept running until her strength ran out, then stopped and looked fearfully behind her. Of course, there was nothing there. What could there possibly be? As her breath slowed and her heart stilled enough for her to hear the forest around her, Alice strained her ears for the horrible sound. She heard only the wind in the trees and bushes and the stirring of the wildlife around her, and yet the grating, jarring, creaking reverberated in her head. She knew instinctively that nothing would be capable of wiping that sound from her mind. The trees and bushes around her seemed darker. The soft, familiar sounds of creatures moving through the undergrowth seemed sinister, unnerving. For the first time in her life, the forest was no longer a haven, no longer a friend. It was something to be feared. Alice realized that her fear was out of all proportion to what had happened, and yet it persisted. That day, Alice spent as little time as she could in the village, explaining to people how to use the tinctures, balsams, and poultices she had prepared for them, rather than staying to administer them. She even turned down Maggie Gray's offer of a meal, although she did stay long enough to show the mother how to dose the cough mixture for her little girl. Instead, Alice packed away the food and other items that the villagers gave her in return for her services, and hurried home, going out of her way to avoid the clearing with the large creaking tree at its edge. Long before darkness fell, she made sure that she gathered everything she needed for the next day, then locked herself away in her house. But try as she might, she couldn't get the creaking out of her head. That night, Alice dreamt that she was running through the forest. It was dark, and something blacker than the night was chasing her. As she ran, nettles stung her, thorns scratched her, and roots tried to trip her up and send her sprawling. Alice ran blindly on, and unexpectedly found herself bursting out into the clearing. She came to an abrupt halt, shocked at finding herself exposed and vulnerable to the dark malignant presence that pursued her. She moved swiftly but silently back into the trees and listened for any sound of her pursuer. And that's when it came, the blood-curdling screech of bending wood, the creaking that turned the sweat on Alice's back to ice. She span round, looking up into the large tree above her. Was that a black shape? A shadow crouching in the branches? Alice screamed and woke up. For the next few days... Alice continued to avoid the clearing and the tree, but her unease didn't lessen. If anything, it grew. She gathered what plants she needed for her medicines without straying any further from her house than she had to. She did her rounds in the village and hurried back home. At night she dreamt about the darkness that pursued her through the forest and the creaking. Then, one day when she got to the village, she found the villagers in a tense and morose mood. The Terrell boy had gone missing. His abusive and permanently angry father had last seen him the night before. Old man Terrell had been drinking in the kitchen with his friends when the boy came in to say goodnight. Fuck off to bed, you little shit! Terrell's response elicited peals of laughter from his drunken cronies. 
The boy had scuttled off to bed, and that was the last anyone had seen of him. Old man Terrell had woken up at lunchtime and gone round the house looking for someone to vent his hangover on. He couldn't find his twelve-year-old son, so he clouded his wife and demanded to be fed. Mrs. Terrell had gone out into the yard to call Tommy in for lunch, assuming that he'd gotten up early, made his own breakfast, and gone to play with friends. But her son was nowhere to be seen. I can't find Tommy, she told her husband as she fearfully set his plate of food down in front of him. I'll kill the little shit when he gets back, he had replied. Terrell spent the afternoon drinking, only pausing between drinks to repeat his threat. But by the time it got dark and his wife had unsuccessfully scoured the village for the boy, his protestations had decreased somewhat in their vehemence, if not frequency. A brief torchlit search of the village and its immediate surroundings was organized. But Tommy wasn't found. The villagers quickly did what villagers often do in times of perceived threat. They became suspicious and mistrustful of outsiders. It was into this atmosphere that Alice arrived the next morning. She checked in on the little gray girl and gave Maggie a fresh pot of medicine for her. The toddler's cough had lessened. She's getting better. Alice smiled shyly at Maggie Gray. Yes. Maggie pulled her daughter towards herself, away from Alice, then got a hold of herself and added without much enthusiasm, Thank you, Alice. There was an uncomfortable silence. I'll be going then, offered Alice, adding nervously, Mrs. Pratt is waiting for her bunion ointment. Maggie got up silently and fetched a dozen eggs from the back of the house. Mrs. Pratt was in a talkative mood. Alice was hardly through the door when the old woman told her how Tommy had disappeared the day before and how a search of the village had turned up no sign of him. Poor Betty Terrell is hysterical, Mrs. Pratt said with barely concealed delight, and even old man Terrell has been out looking for the boy. That's terrible, responded Alice. I hope they find him. Tommy had risen early the day before, grabbed a slice of bread and a piece of cheese, and crept out of the house without waking his parents. He'd decided on the previous night that he would visit his cousin in the neighboring village. There was no point asking his parents, as his mother would defer to his father, and his father would hit him with the buckle of his belt. If he slipped out early, he could get back by tea time. His father would be too hung over in the morning and too drunk in the afternoon to notice that he was gone, and he would be home for supper. The boy set out across the cornfields just as dawn broke, and was at his cousin's in time for breakfast. Charlie was thrilled to see him, and his aunt and uncle made a fuss of him. Your parents do know you're here, questioned his aunt. Tommy nodded. Uh-huh. And they let you come all the way here on your own? Uh-huh. Tommy smiled at his uncle and aunt. He was jealous of Charlie. Charlie's dad never hit him or shouted at his mother. Charlie's mom was pretty and always smiling, not like Tommy's mother, who had frown lines and puffy, tear-stained eyes and was always sad. Charlie's father helped the boys to make fishing rods, whilst his mother made them a hamper with bread, cheese, ham, and milk. Then the two cousins set out for the river. The day was warm and sultry. The boys fished and chatted, ate, and eventually dozed off in a haystack, 
waking up when the sun started going down and a chill crept into the air. By the time they got back to Charlie's house, there was less than an hour of daylight left. As Tommy had a two-hour walk to get home, his uncle and aunt offered to let him stay the night, provided his parents wouldn't be worried. Tommy told them that his parents had said he could stay over if it got late and could come home on Sunday. He would get a hiding one way or the other, so he figured he might as well delay the inevitable. When Tommy got home, his mother ran to him and hugged him, tears of relief staining her face. Where have you been? Tommy's father was sitting at the kitchen table, surrounded by his drinking buddies, who were helping him drown his sorrows and work out where to look for his boy. Before Tommy had time to answer his mother, his father got up from the table and lumbered towards him. Oh, I'm going to kill you, you little shit! Tommy didn't know whether to stay or run. He'd rarely seen his father quite so angry. Where the devil have you been, you little shit? Tommy cowered back as his father approached, pulling off his belt and brandishing the buckle end at his son. Go on, tell me! Where have you been, you little shit? The belt whistled through the air and hit the boy on the side, knocking him off his feet. His mother screamed and ran to defend her son, but Terrell pushed her out of the way and went to take another swing at the boy. There must have been a particularly homicidal look on old man Terrell's face as his companions stopped laughing, and one of them decided to intervene. Jim pulled himself up drunkenly from the kitchen table and staggered up between Terrell and his son. Which took you, did she, boy? Which took you? To make a potion out of your blood? Old man Terrell paused, belt in hand, confused by the question. Which took you and locked you up? But you got away, prompted Jim. I'll kill you, you little shit! Terrell had regained his momentum and was about to pelt the boy again when Tommy piped up from the floor. Yes, sir! Huh? grunted Terrell. Which took me and locked me up? But I got away. Who locked you up? fumed Terrell. Are you lying to me, boy? No, sir. If you're lying to me, I'll kill you. Which took me and was was gonna make me into a potion, but I got away. Nobody hurts my boy. Terrell turned to face his friends. You hear me? Nobody hurts my boy. We hear you, Robert. Jim raised his hand in a placating gesture. But there was no placating old man Terrell. I'll kill her! I'll kill the witch! Terrell glared at his companions. Are you going to sit there or are you going to help me? As old man Terrell was the parish constable, they decided to help. Who's he talking about? Nathaniel Jackson whispered as the drunken party spilled out of the house after Terrell. Alice Goodman, I guess, mused George Hogg. Ain't no one else around here who makes potions. Hang on, Robert. Jim tried to undo what he'd done, but it was too late. He was pushed aside, and by the time old man Terrell had finished rousing the villagers, his party was over a dozen strong. They set off to put an end to the witch who'd been killing children, draining their blood and grinding up their bones to make her unholy potions. Old Joe had been living in the village for a long time and knew exactly how to get to the witch's house. Alice had just cleaned up after supper and was getting ready to mix her medicines for the following day when she heard the voices. At first she thought she must be mistaken, but the shouting grew louder, angrier, and now she could see the flickering orange light of torches dancing amongst the trees. 
They were getting closer, and Alice knew she should run, but it was too late. They were already here. A baying mob, shrieking and snarling like beasts. Alice Goodman, come out! Come out now, or we're coming in! Alice stood rooted to the spot with fear. Then the door flew open and Robert Terrell burst in, accompanied by his own personal lynch mob. Alice wanted to scream, but no sound came from her throat. Gotcha, you fucking witch! growled Terrell. You won't be killing any more children! Someone shouted from the back of the crowd. Alice couldn't speak, but she shook her head and held up her hands in a vain attempt to ward off the fury that was being hurled at her. Then Terrell had her by the hair, and she was twisting in pain, being forced out into the night, fists punching her and nails scratching her as she was half-dragged, half-carried out of her house and through the forest. A punch to Alice's right eye screwed it tight shut as the tissue swelled up around it. Her left eye filled with her own blood from a gash on her forehead. She couldn't see, and in her fear and pain she couldn't sense that the trees around her had thinned and the undergrowth had given way to grass. "'This'll do!' someone shouted. Alice recognized the voice of John Briggs. Only last week she'd cured the fungal infection on his feet with her garlic and chamomile ointment. He said he'd never forget what she'd done for him. The villagers stopped, and Alice tried to cry out to Briggs, but still no sound came from her cracked, bleeding lips. Alice threw herself forward in an attempt to break free. A violent tug to her hair ripped much of it out and brought on a fresh wave of pain. Stay still, witch! It was Terrell's voice. Hold her, will ya? Give it here, shouted Briggs. Rough hands held her even tighter, crushing her arms. Then Alice felt something being pulled down over her head. She realized what was about to happen moments before she felt the... Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ropes sting and tighten around her neck. Then she was being hoisted up off her feet, the burning pain in her neck unbearable, and the breath choked out of her slowly, prolonging her agony. The last thing Alice heard was the horrific, jarring creaking as the branch bent under her weight, and the darkness took her. That was Anna Taborska's The Creaking, read by Sylvia Schultz. Sylvia's certainly no stranger around these parts. You all know her from her Lights Out segments right here on Tales to Terrify. So you may know all about her, but for more recent people joining our dark family, here's a few tidbits about her. Sylvia Schultz has been a paranormal investigator for several years. She began her career as a ghost hunter as a result of doing the research for her nonfiction book, Ghosts of the Illinois River, Coyote Press, 2010. Her fascination with ghosts dates back to her childhood, as she is an avid reader who was raised on Grimm's fairy tales. A few years ago, Schultz was inspired to write a collection of people's supernatural experiences at the Peoria State Hospital in Bartonville, Illinois. The project quickly swelled into Fractured Spirits' hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital. The book incorporates the history of the asylum as well as many ghost stories that have arisen out of the asylum's abandonment. In an effort to separate fact from fiction, Schultz thoroughly explores the true history of the hospital. Fractured Spirits, Hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital is a result of years of research. Schultz spoke to dozens of people who have had paranormal experiences at the abandoned asylum. She has also done many investigations of her own. The book and Schultz's research was featured on an episode of Ghost Hunters, Prescription for Fear, which aired January 30th. 2013. Schultz lives in Illinois with her husband. She works at the Fond du Lac District Library, mostly in order to feed her book addiction. She also serves as the publicity director for Dark Continents Publishing. In addition to nonfiction, she also writes romance and horror. She is the first to admit that there is a fine line between the two. And of course, link to her website, sylviaschultz.com, will be in the show notes. Thank you, Sylvia. Our second story of the night comes from Ed Ahern. His link will be in the show notes, swampgasworks.com. Ed returned to writing after having spent most of a lifetime doing other things. He is married, has two children, and five grandchildren. He claims a pleasantly haphazard life. He has lived and worked in Germany, Finland, Japan, and England. The globe-trotting Ahern has visited roughly 70 countries and can speak German, French, and can get by in Japanese. He has a BS from Illinois and an MBA from NYU. 
After university, he worked as a naval officer specializing in diving and bomb disarming, a reporter for the Providence, Rhode Island Journal, a foreign intelligence specialist, and an international sales and marketing executive for two pulp and paper companies. Having now returned to writing, he focuses on fantasy, science fiction, folk, and fairy tales. And now, we will hear Ed Ahern's Damned If You Do. Nadia led him down a flight of stairs into the fluorescent-lit basement of a converted church. I don't go into churches, he told her. Don't worry, she'd replied. It was desanctified years ago. They emerged into a single room, about thirty yards long and twenty wide, and pushed through clouds of tobacco smoke. About forty people were clustered at tables at one end of the room. Nadia pointed to an open chair. Sit there. I'll be at the next table. Don't mind the smoke. We encourage tobacco smoking as a vice. But not dope. Clouds the mind. Don't make any of your snap judgments. Just listen. She watched David insert himself between a t-shirted woman with tattoos on her neck, arms, and hands, and a tie-choked man, drab-dressed as if for a funeral. A pathologically obese man at the front of the group started a recitation, the others chanting with him. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could relieve me of my inhibitions. Made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of a dark power much greater than myself. And so on. Twelve steps in all. As the recitation droned on, Nadia noticed David was staring at his neighbor's cabalistic inkings. The speaker paused. Would any newcomers please raise their hands? The funeral director was staring at David with hungry anticipation. He raised his hand and mouthed the words Nadia had provided. My name is David and I'm a chronic relapser into moral conformity. Welcome, David, the group chanted. The group leader proceeded. Tonight we continue our focus on another of the seven deadly sins, sloth. What does sloth mean to you, David? Ah, uh, laziness or inactivity instead of needed action. Partly, yes, but only the commonplace part. Listen, everyone. Real sloth means taking credit or money for the work of others without contributing anything yourself. Who can give me examples from their lives of how they've been able to achieve this? Nadia had encountered David in a singles bar called The Body Shop. She was seated at the bar, suffering through a painfully bad pickup attempt. She caught David's eye, and he read the situation in the exchange of glances. David sat next to the man, interrupted his pitch, 
and in five minutes had angered and scared the man enough that he'd left muttering threats. David matter-of-factly moved over next to Nadia. Is your pickup gambit always to instigate a fight? Only when I think they're afraid of me. They word-sparred easily, layering up innuendos, and left together. Nadia surprised herself and agreed to stop by David's apartment, and when she made the move that led to their tumbling into bed. David put his needs first, but carried Nadia along nicely during the ride. They pillow-talked afterward about what else got them aroused. Nadia delighted in violating norms, in flouting the rules of decency. David preferred illicit sensation without heavy thinking, maximum experience for acceptable risk. That next morning, Nadia convinced David to go on a shoplifting trip. They acted as lookout and diversion for each other, actions meshing almost without speaking. They tallied price tags over lunch. Nadia had outscored David by about $250. All right, David said. I'm envious. You stole better than I did this time. Just wait. Since I lost, I'll buy lunch. Neither of us is buying. And both of us are getting arrested. Nadia grinned. I don't think so. I've been watching the waitress and manager. They both make trips to the kitchen and stay there for two or three minutes. The next time they're both in there, we take a brisk walk out the door. Better go through your pre-flight checklist. After the fifteen-yard dash through the front door, they slowed to a stroll and kept talking. They were both fans of heavy metal and had overlapping tastes in movies. Nadia for horror, David for comic book violence. Nadia noticed that David never cursed or blasphemed, almost as though it was superfluous. His pleasure-taking seemed limited to his senses, and he restrained himself only when the risks were substantial. She envisioned him as abstract art, an oil painting entirely in matte black, with no distracting moral highlights. He embodied perverse modesty. He could commit offenses without feeling guilt or pride. His calmness hid a quagmire she felt she was being sucked down into. They'd been together for two weeks when she wrapped her torso over his and whispered in his ear, Do you wonder where I go evenings between eight and ten? Not really, but okay. What drags you away from me two evenings a week? It's a meeting, David, for people like us. It helps me to overcome my doubts about what I'm doing. You should come. I don't need to hang out with strangers to know that I like myself. Don't pretend to be that dumb. You've no knowledge of what you're missing, and it's an anonymous program. Really anonymous. We punish people who even hint about it to outsiders. 
Nadia knew he would be a strong addition to her group and cajoled David until he agreed to come. She then worked up the courage to mention him to Abaddon, the group leader. Nick Abaddon studied her for a long minute expressionlessly. She feared him in such moments. You may be right, Nadia. He sounds interesting. Bring him to the Monday meeting. As David sat half listening to the fat man, Abaddon came up behind him. The tattooed woman and the undertaker winced and peeled out of their seats without a word. The man moved from behind David to the illustrated lady's chair. Hello, David. David turned in his seat. Who are you? Abaddon. Nick Abaddon. Don't you smoke? Don't drink either. Your drug habits are no concern of mine, but I don't like taking something that dulls my edge. Interesting. I don't do drugs either, although I promote their use. David looked more closely. Abaddon was old, but his sleek ivory complexion made guessing his age impossible. His eyes were very bright, but occluded, as though he was holding back on their full force. Do you have a sponsor, David? I don't know that I'm interested enough in what you do to get one. Seems like just a lot of chanting and slogans. Abaddon didn't smile, but his eyes brightened slightly. David, the worst offense we commit against ourselves isn't to let fear drag us back into religion. It's indifference. And there are so many now who just loiter on the sidelines. They're already damned, but never open up to enjoy the process. Our program tells you in 12 steps how to come awake and really live. Yeah, well, not giving a damn is a useful posture. Look, Mr. Abadan, Nadia asked me to come here, so I did. But I'm content with what I am. You're not showing me anything I want. You seem to have your members intimidated, but I go my own way, without the melodrama. Nadia said you were self-propelled. Would you describe yourself as a hedonist, David? Out for yourself? Of course. And that you would take violent action to improve your situation? Well, depends on the risk. And that injury to others is sometimes necessary? Collateral damage can't be avoided. David, you're an idiot savant. Doing our kinds of things, but crudely, without the refinements that add so much to enjoyment. Here's what I propose. Accept me as your temporary sponsor. Come to a meeting a day for the next 90 days. If after 90 days you don't think you're getting a lot more out of life, I'll help you become a Jesuit. That's a lot of meetings. I'll show you how to enjoy them. 
When David told Nadia that Abaddon had become his sponsor, she was anxious. Abaddon hadn't accepted a sponsee in all the time she'd been going to meetings, despite several people asking him. After a few meetings, people noticed the guidance that Abaddon was providing David, and began currying favor with him. But Nadia knew that David used people in a one-way, one-time fashion and was uncomfortable with relationships, even venal ones. He slashed at their overtures until they stopped making them. Abaddon began giving David assignments, service work, he called it. Nadia, at this point, was living with David. There had never been even a suggestion of his moving in with her. She never asked David where he went and what he did, but sometimes he took her with him. Nadia's guilty pleasures were focused on shock rather than injury, and she began to hate what David was bringing her into. He developed a scheme, a project, he called it, for robbing the old and infirm on subway rides a procedure Nadia was forced to watch on several rides that they took together. But David tired of it. Boring, he said. At Abaddon's direction, David began to entice and bring home young girls from the bus terminal, mildly abuse them, and then discard them back at the bus station. Nadia tried to be out of the apartment when David did this, but sometimes walked in on David and a sobbing teenager. Nadia finally left David after they had killed an elderly woman. They occupied her apartment and forced her to sign checks and provide account numbers. They roped her to her bed, unfed and unsanitary, until there was no more money or property to steal. Nadia had been bullied into sharing the custodial duties. She forced herself to tell David that their treatment of the woman was needlessly vicious. David had stared flatly back at her. His look was rawer, cruder than Abaddon's, but carried the same threat. She only said it once. David finally untied the old woman and left her in her bed, starving and infirm, unable to move. He threw a pot full of cold water on her, facilitating a rapid death from pneumonia. Nadia felt coated in self-revulsion. She left David, quit going to the meetings, and never told anyone in the group where she now lived. She kept hoping that David would call and say that he, too, had broken things off with Abaddon. Several other group members did call and leave messages of concern, and then threats, but not David. She thought about going to a church, but decided it was not only hypocritical, but useless. No minister accustomed to garden-variety transgressions would understand. She thought briefly about suicide, but didn't want to die feeling like she did about herself. The moon cycled twice before David called. Look, Nadia, 
I'm afraid of where Abaddon is leading me. Can we get together to talk? I can't let you know where I live, David. I understand. Let's meet at the downtown Sheridan. Lots of people around. I don't know that I can help you, David. You're really deep into the program, deeper than I ever got. At least talk to me, Nadia. Tell me how you got out. They met on Sunday morning for brunch, watching the sauce congeal on their eggs benedict without eating them. I do miss you, Nadia. You're the only person other than Abaddon I'm able to open up to. David, I'm afraid for you, and afraid of you at the same time. It's like you've awakened and you're not the cute guy sleeping next to me anymore. You're something I don't want to touch. It was a mistake for me to join the group, and doubly wrong to bring you into it. Abaddon wondered for a while if you'd come back. Now he knows you won't. He's dangerous, Nadia, really dangerous. Stay hidden. I only wish I could get out. I ran away because I'm scared as hell. I'm never going back. Don't get trapped, David. Run away. I don't know if I can. Here, let me top up your coffee. They sipped coffee and talked about their lingering commonalities. But Nadia could take no comfort in what little they had left together. The conversation broke down under its own inane weight. As Nadia stared at David, her eyelids began to sag. When she was aware of opening them again, she was stretched out naked in her own bathtub, immersed in warm water. She tried to move then tried to scream, but could do neither. She could barely concentrate enough to breathe. David was seated on the edge of the bathtub. Glad you're awake. Your mouth is taped, so please just listen. We tracked you here several weeks ago, but kept hoping you'd come back. A sudden extra fright sparked in Nadia's eyes. What is it? Ah, uh, no, I didn't have sex with you. That wouldn't have been appropriate. We couldn't have you fleeing towards repentance, Nadia. Not with your knowledge of us. You're going to apparently commit suicide. I do regret this. It was you that brought me to Abaddon and helped me awake. You're woven into my life. Fortunately, though, you're still damned for prior offenses. Abaddon won't lose you. Nadia began to cry soundlessly, droplets wandering down her face. I'm going to miss you, Nadia. I doubt I'll ever be this close with another woman. David had been holding a double-edged razor blade. He picked her left arm out of the bathwater and stroked her hand before cutting deeply into her forearm 
just above the wrist. He gently lowered her left arm back into the water and plucked out the right arm, repeating the process. The bath water reddened in sluggish swirls. Nadia's vision began to fail, and she strained to focus on David's face, which stared back at her with patience and affection. You can go to hell now, he whispered. That was Ed Ahern's Damned If You Do, as read by David Cummings. Thank you, David. David Cummings is the host and producer of The No Sleep Podcast, an award-winning anthology series of horror original stories. Link, of course, will be in the show notes. He hails from Toronto, Canada, with a background as a professional musician. He has expanded into the realm of voice actor and narrator. He has been heard on various commercial projects and speculative fiction podcasts, including Pseudopod and Crime City Central. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Come join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 